Friends, where does the cup of iniquity becomes full for a nation? When are people ripe for judgment? That is the question that started even in my own country, the flourishing and extraordinarily beautiful city of Messina in South Italy. My home country is this town of Messina, located there in the island of Sicily. And yet in the early morning of December 28, 1908, an earthquake struck that city. And 84,000 human beings died. Only a few hours before that devastating earthquake, which laid the entire town and the surrounding district in ruins, the situation among the Italians was very unspeakably wicked. The irreligious condition of some of the inhabitants had led to a series of violent proclamations. The newspaper Il Telefono had published in its Christmas issue, talk about Christmas, an abominable parody daring the Almighty to make himself known by sending an earthquake. And in three days, the earthquake came. In a similar way tonight, as we begin to look at this uh, judgment to the unrepentant nation of Israel, we begin a journey through the major prophets. Uh, our overall goal, if you were sitting with us in our evening service, was a series of messages from the Old Testament. Uh, we look at a brief overview on the kingdom of David and a man after God's heart. We looked at obedience and uh, disobedience. Now we come to the ultimate fruit of disobedience in Israel history. And so we want to select several passages from the major prophets to look at what led to the ultimate fruit of disobedience. We looked already in some of the minor prophets like Jonah or Habakkuk. And then after this, we'll look after Christmas, Lord willing, to the restoration for obedience from Ezra, Daniel, and some of the later uh, prophetic books. The prophets, I want to say, first of all, are one of the most neglected books in the contemporary church, sadly. And yet they are the most contemporary to help us frame what is happening in our world. And where we are at, I want to say, even as a nation. And as we look at the collapse of Western civilization, the neglect and in, in the, of these books is already, I want to say, an indictment against the pulpit of today. That I want to say, yes, there will be materials that we're going to cover that is not easy to digest. But that there's also kind of a cowardice to while telling the whole truth regardless of consequences. And sometimes it's hard truths in the prophets. And I feel like Isaiah here is a good place to start. He's first listed as the major prophets in our Bibles. And here we come to the very first chapter. And in the very first chapter of Isaiah, we already can trace the sum of the issue that God has with his people. Isaiah is an early prophet we are between the Assyrian invasion of the northern tribes of Israel and the threat of a Babylonian invasion in the south. Israel had broken covenant with God. And here is outlined in chapter 1 a strategy for Israel as a community for dealing with their corporate sin. They have been disobedience. They have been corrupt to the core. Every level of society. And what was needed is a radical reversal, a turning from doing evil to turning to do good. Otherwise, God threatens here a drastic act of discipline. But when the repentance comes, then there's a blessing. This is uh, the, the, the challenge of chapter 1. 
Now, Isaiah knows that the former will be the case. Sadly, there's uh, uh, almost an inescapable judgment. But the last verses to our text are a little bit hopeful. Already pointed to the restoration after judgment. And we'll see more of that in coming weeks. Verse 1, however, tells us the time where Isaiah prophesies. Between the end of Uzziah's reign and Hezekiah. Here we are in 739 and all the way to 680. Which is a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. Before the exile. And yet judgment is already in the air. That while God's people engage in worship. They have sinned in such an undeniable and widespread way that unless they repent, God will reject them. God will send a lasting judgment upon the unrepentant nation. Let us look, first of all, at the nature and the call to repentance. That is the crucial word in the prophets. We see that in our text in verse 16, 17. Repentance, what is repentance? We already explored this, but here is more clear to us that repentance is a forsaking of sin and a pursuit of righteousness. And that, in the case of the Old Covenant, in the case of Israel, brought God's favor. God here has a call to repentance. And He commands us in this way, verse 16 and 17, to wash, become clean, put away evil doings, cease to do evil. And it doesn't stop there. There is also a positive aspect in repentance. Learning to do good. By doing justice, rebuking oppressor, and defending the vulnerable, the fatherless, the widow. And there is a promise attached to that in the Old Covenant. That if they do so, they shall eat the good of the land. The promised land. Which their remaining in the promised land was conditional upon remaining faithful to the obligations of obedience. And now here comes repentance. The U-turn in the road. There is a return, a turning away from activities and attitudes that have been opposed to God. And that now they turn away from that and they turn now to God and His ways. They come back to the God that they have forsaken through sin. Back to faithfulness from this broken relationship of a covenant obligation through disobedience which brought all the old covenant curses upon Israel. That sometimes God indeed had to pour out His wrath upon His people. And the prophets uh, are coming to tell and warn that there are times where God indeed poured this wrath upon His people. Because of the affront of their sin and the patience of God running out. Now, it doesn't mean that these prophecies are not anymore intended as a warning to us. Not to follow in their same footstep. In fact, repentance continues to be a key requirement in the new testament isaiah is this uh, image of the vine which sadly produced bad fruit or the image of a wife forsaking her husband to go to strangers which ultimately was pointing to their yes adultery but also idolatry political alliances in israel and now the prophet's plea whether it's isaiah ezekiel jeremiah is the return to the lord and, and because there is still time to come back before the judgment comes. But when, when the judgment is unleashed, it will be too late to repent. Friends, repentance is a grace that God grants. And there is a coming doom, an ultimate judgment where repentance is no longer possible. Someone said repentance is not an optional. It requires us to solemnly, seriously and publicly determine to no longer find our ultimate value, acceptance and connection in the kingdom of self. 
And without repentance, we have chosen self as the object of our worship. Repentance, friends, remains the necessary condition from the prophets. That's what we gather here. God's people are called to turn away from sin if they want to remain under the favor of God. The fact that we speak of repentance at all, friends, proves there is a root problem in all of us. A departure, a breaking, a separation between us and God. And God and us can be brought together through this first word from the heart of God that is repent. Not just individually, but in this case corporately. You see, because a corporate sin of a nation necessitates a corporate repentance. And the burden of the prophet is this. It's to share this word with their generation, to call the nation to repent, to go back to the faithfulness where the country of Israel once was and no longer is. And it's also the, the, the prophets want to warn us of the immense, real, tangible, and lasting danger that failing to repent entails the collapse of a civilization. But before we go there, let's first see the ways in which Israel was unrepentant. And there you have verse 2 and 29 in particular in our text. Israel rebelled against their heavenly father. There's this image of a father. And, and they did so by going after all the gods. The number one sin that is listed for us here is idolatry. The refrain of the prophet is that Israel fails to repent. In verse 2, God prophecy calls heaven and earth to witness to this case of this parental relationship. We think of the, the prodigal son, that the son, the father, rears and brought up the children, and God did so with Israel, only to see them end up rebellious, transgressing and rejecting and despising the authority of their heavenly father. It is almost as if they did this covenant treachery against God. Breaking away from God. Verse 29, as I said, particularly singles out the sin of idolatry as the most offensive sin against God. The judgment comes when people will be ashamed of their idolatry. But before they are judged, the prophet needs to come and announce the judgment. That is the task of a prophet. To call sin out. To warn of the coming judgment. The God's word like fire sets the world aflame or smashes like a hammer the rock of stony hearts. And here's the list of some of Israel's main sin. There was a widespread stubborn unrepentance in idolatry, as I said, food sacrifices to the queen of heaven, the worship of other gods, Baal, the shedding of innocent blood, the plundering, the building houses out of theft. Not giving proper wages to the worker. Not delivering the oppressed. Violence in the streets. Not defending the orphan, the widow, the stranger. Not defending the cause of the poor and the needy. Instead, strengthening the hands of evildoers. Justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. And not only this, but they refuse to repent. They have this perpetual backsliding. Knowing suppressing the truth. In fact, they go after false prophets. One thing that is widely condemning the prophets is prophets who lies and say peace peace but there is no peace no disaster shall befall us even if we continue to war walk in our stubbornness these are false hopes they make god's people trust in lies that no harm and disaster shall come they avoid to tell the, the truth they are indeed compromised the false prophets and their message becomes compromise as if God can grant favor to Israel regardless of their deeds. 
as if this, this, this covenant is unbreakable, and God has this unbreakable allegiance to the nation, despite the fact that they are completely backslidden. It's as if the clay wants to become the potter. As if they can decide what God is supposed to do with them, regardless of their sin. However, Israel remains an insignificant grasshopper, about to be smashed by the footstool of the Almighty God, particularly the false prophets, who are daring to speak God's name, but they prophesy a lie by saying no evil, no disaster, no exile shall come upon us. They follow their evil dictates of their hearts. No wisdom is left in the false prophet. In fact, they steal God's word from one another. They parade their piety, but they have denied the power and their message is powerless. And they will pay with their life with judgment. When judgment comes, no one can escape judgment. Because especially those who have distorted, falsified the word of God, the true word of God, in fact, is a reproach to Israel by this time. They re refuse to walk in the ancient path. They ignore and even persecute the true prophets. William Taylor once says, True repentance hate the sins and not merely the penalty. He hates the sin most of all because it has discovered and felt God's love. None of that, friends. None of that is what is taking place with Israel at this point in their history. The rebellion of God's people against the Lord are undeniable. And it is abundantly obviously today as it was back then. Both as you look at our nation, as we look at the church, we are failing to, to repent. And some keep denying this blatant truth. They pretend to hide their sin under a fig leaf, friends. They pretend that all is well, that idolatry, by the way, is not just a false statue, but is false ideas about God. False prophets that today abound in the church as they were back then. And that allows all sort of immorality, injustice, compromises, treacheries, and even hate against those who expose sin, those few prophets. Let me list some of the persecution that comes on Isaiah. Isaiah will be chained. They will be put into a, a piece of wood and they will cut him in two. You see, the problem was not just the fact that the nation of Israel sinned. But that leads us to the third point. The degree to which Israel was unrepentant. They backslided so much that they were no less than Sodom. I mean, that's how bad the nation had become. This is how it looks like, friends. When God removes the restraint on a society and wickedness, it's widespread before he unleashes his judgment. Verse 3 and 4 uses the metaphor of an ox or a donkey. A uh, donkey recognizes and obeys its owner. Now, here in Colombia, we, we know about mules, right? Uh, you know that mules can bond with their owners. They have a memory that is actually superior to the horse. And if an owner treats the mule well, it will form a lasting bond. Sadly, however, we also have the way of saying, right? As stubborn as a mule, right? Now, this is what's happening here with Israel. Israel is supposed to listen to the Lord. But like a stubborn mule knows nothing of that bond which with Yahweh as its owner. They're laden with iniquity, an offspring of evildoers. Not only they are corrupt, but that who can only teach others corruption. That's all they can do. They have forgotten God. They are alienated from God. They have provoked the holy God to anger. Verse 5 and 6 tells us 
the level of apostasy that is everywhere. God is almost asking, why do I have to chastise them again? Why more correction? Because it only produces more rebellion. The text there says, says this, that the whole, heart, the whole body is sick, verse 5 and 6. The whole body is disease. This is a massive corruption from head to toe. There is no soundness left. Imagine a body completely covered with wounds from beatings putrefying in gangrene and there's no medicine for it that's describing the heart and the mind of god's people at this stage in israel this true spiritual condition of israel before judgment is that they're completely rotten verse 10 even in sarcastic ways compares israel to sodom and gomorrah despite their claim to the god of israel they're no better than the sodomites and in verse 21 to 23 god laments about jerusalem Jerusalem was the holy city that now has been turned into a harlot. Once was the city of righteousness, but now it's full of murderers. Everyone is a cheater. Its leaders are friends with thieves. They're only driven by bribery. They ignore the needy. And they don't just need to sin, but look at the degree to sin. To the point that the faithful man has perished from the land. That no one is upright. Everyone is lying in wait for the neighbor to fall and and take his life away. Everyone hunt each other with nets. Imagine a society when citizens, priests, prophets, all of them are liars, cheaters, and plotters. I mean, parents were offering children to Moloch. Worship of demons. Inside the temple. And even when they try to obey, even when they recognize that, but they do that inconstantly out of a pretense for a, for a season. But then they quickly change their mind and go back to the same sins to the point that sometimes the prophet says even the pagans surpass israel in being consistent in obeying to their religious duties even if they, they don't even fear the god of israel the fear of god is gone and so the prophets even wonder will anyone repent that is the question of the prophet there's no fear sadly of the consequence of judgment no tearing of clothes no sackcloth which was the old testament symbol for repentance no humbling no one repents god called and they did not answer in fact they turned their back on god one of the king of israel in fact will receive the the oracle from jeremiah cut it into pieces burning into the fire rather than obey the word of god that is the people that sin it's not just the ethan but the self-professing believers of Israel, the leading professing believers, the religious and political leaders of the theocratic kingdom of Israel, they're just rotten figs, stinks, and are good only to be thrown into the trash. Friends, it's not just iniquity, but the stubborn, stiff-necked, widespread, and shameless iniquity. Imagine a situation where everyone is adulterous, everyone is treacherous, everyone becomes an habitual liar, everyone is crafty and smart, ex expert in doing evil. The prophet describes this generation, whether it's Ezekiel, Isaiah, or others, as a generation of sharp teeth, thorns, briars, scorpions, ready to bite. Their face is as hard as rock. Profanity prevails, even among the priests. Endless accumulation of sin. More and more bold in their sinnings. Even in God's eyes, their repentance becomes as hopeless as to try to change one's skin. Their sin, says the Lord, is written with a pen of iron engraved in the table of their hearts. 
that is impossible for, for them to learn to do good who are so accustomed only to do evil. There's no more conscience. You live in a society where you cannot trust anyone. That people plot to trap the true prophets of God left in the land thinking that there will be no repercussion. They even want to kill those who call them to repent. The attacks that God sends to the prophets are untold. Ezekiel will die in exile. Jeremiah, yes, he's persecuted, but he actually is spared throughout the judgment. And then other, other prophets like Uriah, he, they're not as fortunate. He flees to Egypt, but then he's brought back to, and killed. But again, few come to the help of the prophets. I think of the Ethiopian who helped Jeremiah. He's spared for defending the persecuted prophet. But sadly, he wasn't a Jew that defended and understood the repercussion for failing to repent. That in Israel, the point here is, is this, the degree of sin in this nation is so great that God is now justified to unleash the judgment. That a wickedness is everywhere, even in God's house. Before judgment, the, the level of wickedness is that no one does good anymore. They're completely given up to their blindness. They think they can hide from God and hate if someone wake up to the reality of the blatant and excusable sin that they're committing. Or, worse of all, well, I might as well continue this course if God is bringing judgment anyway on the land. Let me continue to, to do that. It's like you hear the threat, you mentally recognize it, yet you are not bothered of applying this threat to your specific sin and desperate need to turn away from sin. This is the tragedy here, that God gives an entire nation up. That there's no mercy, no atonement, no forgiveness available. Henry Smith says, Sodom was burned, but the sin of Sodom had escaped. And here we see it, even in the people of Israel. The problem is not just sin, but the extent to which such sin in Israel represents an open offense to God. I want to say the problem you see here in our text is not just that there's sin, but the sinning with pride. When a nation sends the middle finger at God, that whoever mentions the truth from the Bible about judgment will be possibly mistreated, arrested. That a nation comes to the worst sin that Sodom now promoted in school, inviting the judgment of God. I mean, we're in a stage right now that you cannot find any faithfulness in the land left. Things are so bad in people's conscience that their conscience is completely numb to, to anything. Trust among men is gone. Things cannot be so bad and the end not be near. But I want you to see how the main culprit is not the pagans. The main culprit is the Israelites here. The temple goers. Let's look at the fourth point here. The impact of unrepentance on worship. And you see that in verse 11 to 15. That when Israel was mixing their crimes with their worship... It made their worship vain. It was an insult to God. And God became deaf to their worship. What is the relationship between sin and worship here? Because you see, at this point, the Israelites will say, But well, come on. You said we rebelled against you. But look, we've, we've been going to the temple every day. We, we have offered sacrifices after sacrifices. That was the, the thinking of Saul, as we saw in previous evening service. But God actually here in our text, in verse 11 to 12 pleads that they stop worshiping him. He rejects their sacrifices because they're trampling in God's courts. And verse 13, 
says your sacrifices are vain, futile, pointless. It's almost a charade. God says, I cannot endure two things. I cannot endure the iniquity and the sacred assembling. God is disgusted by this worship. Why? Because their sin has corrupted their worship. You offer a ceremony, but these people were wicked. And you combine them with a solemn or sacred meeting. A sin-stained celebration, some translation uh, renders that. Just like I hope you would not accept a rotten food, even if brought in a silver plate. You, wouldn't, you would frown if somebody started come, coming and cursing out loud in the midst of our gathering. Think of what God thinks here of the Israelites. Going through the motion of the Jewish festivals in the temple, but their lives were full of unrepented sin. Yes, there's a lot of solemnity. But there was a false pretentious piety that was unacceptable to God. To God, that they claim to worship and offer these sacrifices and ceremonies. God says, I am deaf to your prayers. Verse 14 to 15. Your hands are full of blood. Not just the blood of the sacrifices on the temple, but they are murderous. They have done harm to innocent people by depriving them of their needed help. Look upon a nation so caught up in the down spiral of sin. And we think, oh, well, it's the society's fault. It's the fault of the pagans if we got here. No, no, friends. Judgment begins with the house of God. The real culprit here in, in this story is, is not the pagans, but the professing Israelites. The temple goers. The church and not the world is the real culprit. When we offer a worship that is smoke in the eyes of God, when there is a pretense of worship mixed with ritualism and iniquity. You can sit and hear the word of God like a nice song or a tale bear. But they were not doing it. Pretending to be wise, they became fool. The lying pen of the scribes rejected the word of God. And then you have people, once again, focusing on conspiracy theories or using God as a genie in the bottle to fulfill all their wish. But they're not turning from their sin. They broke the Sabbath which was the sign of the Old Covenant. They engaged in idolatrous worship in the house of God. And they did not worship out of the whole heart, which was the theme that we began with David again. They claimed to be saved. They claimed to be angels, but their life were living like devils. And all of that polluted the worship of God. All of that caused more and more spiritual blindness to be piled up. All of that even brought fasting and ceremonies to become unacceptable before God. And so God abandons the land. It's like churches becoming empty buildings. No longer the house of the Lord. God does not hear prayers. In fact, He says to the prophets, Do not pray for this people. It's like God cast away Israel out of His sight. Even if righteous men will be found, whether it's Moses, Samuel, Noah, Job, Daniel, Ezekiel, they will save only their lives. We often speak of revivals and ultimately the, the reason we are going through this is then to go through the restoration of revival. But praying for awakenings, you see, the alternative to revival is actually judgment. It's a real truth. But the issue here, at least there has to be some life, some concern for the truth, some tears and contrition, fear of God, conviction of sin. But you see, in the time of Israel, none of that was seen. 
People were throwing a fist at God. A spiritually dead temple. And friends, when that comes to the level and the degree of sin, there is no more hope for reformation. The only thing that can quench that is judgment. Judgment and removal of the so-called God's own people in the so-called promised land. That God brings this unavoidable, inevitable judgment. The curse of the old covenant will prevail. And when that comes, there will be no more hiding place. There will be no more silver or gold that will help. No safety in rank or human protection. God will destroy everything. In the choir of life, says someone, it is easy to fake the words, but someday each of us will have to sing solo before God. That God hates and rejects all worship mixed with iniquity. You see here that attempts at engaging in worship on on, on, on the gathering of, of God's people become unacceptable if our everyday action, particularly in our text, the socioeconomic realm, if it's not genuine devotion, if th there is no true justice, then it's vain. And so the greatest problem is not the pagan, but is the, the people of God. There's no greater insult to God than to continue to pretend devotion to God but people engage in these blatant sins. And in before the judgment situation, it's exactly what's happened. That the, from the highest to the lowest level of society, everyone follows their hearts. And God is deaf to the worship. It seems lively. God names him mentioned, but God is not in it. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying things that probably none of us even realize the difference of where this country was. There was a time that the kingdom of God here in this country was widespread. God was speedily at work in this land. And many have not even noticed the difference. And we become kind of normalizing the, le the level of, of corruption that we are right now. And what happens again, as I say, there's no way back. There's no other way but the judgment for unrepentance. That's our last point. The remaining verses here listed for you. That ultimately the lack of repentance of Israel led to the complete ruin through war, through invasion. That God now is justified in bringing and unleashing His judgment. I mean, how would it look to face such judgment, friends? The beginning of Isaiah's prophecies here refers to, obviously, the judgment of what was going on in the northern tribes, possibly. The exile to Assyria, the siege of Jerusalem under Sennacherib, but the refusal to repent will then bring also Judah, the southern kingdom, to then face the sword. Verse 20. The cruel and sudden death in war. That God gets rid of Israel. He avenges Himself. The image there is almost like a metal that is purged through fire to take away the dross of the sins once and for all. Verse 28 speaks of this sudden destruction upon everyone who has forsaken the Lord. It's like autumn. We see now in autumn all the trees are losing their leaves, right? Or like a garden with no water that becomes dry and all the plants die. Friends, this is not something to rejoice. something we should lament. It's not something to be inquired with curiosity. This is dreadful pictures. Judgment, friends, is far more than a nation being abandoned to immorality or an economic crisis. That is just the, 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 the prelude to the real judgment. You see, 
People speak of the spiritual decline as being under exile. That is as absurd as suggesting that receiving a little uncomfortable look for being a Christian in North America equals to the evil that you can see as you watch the movie Cinder List. You watch it throughout. People being arrested, put to death, facing a nuclear bomb, starvation, cataclysm, all happening at the same time, one after the other. That is the full measure of what happened to Israel with exile. George Swinnock said this, It is ill being an inhabitant in any place where God is an exile. Imagine for a moment this scenario here. Imagine things going back to worse. There is no more joy, no more life in the streets. God's fury comes down to require the reckoning of sin. Cities are left with no one to live but the poor. Things are enough to lead anyone to despair. It's like a constant nightmare from which you cannot wake up. It's a, a situation like Job with the only difference that Unlike Job, you know that this is deserved. The father saw calamity and their children reap destruction. Drinking the whole cup of God's wrath. Can you imagine? To live in a place where God has set his face against it. That the God of the universe turned turn into your personal enemy. Abhorring the people. Casting you out of his presence. Abandoning you to yourself. Even the temple. God's wrath came down on everyone and it did not turn back. It's compared to the labors of birth pains. I mean, this is hard even for us to imagine what it was. It's a perpetual shame never to end. That you have invaders from pagan nation conquering the whole earth in very little time. Through God's empowering. They're becoming the tools of judgment. They take over the promised land. Everyone thought this was impossible and actually it happens. And once it happens, there's no way out. Everyone who is appointed to this word goes to this word. Anyone who is appointed to famine goes to famine. Anyone who is appointed to death goes to death. Everyone who is appointed to captivity, to captivity it shall go. And Jerusalem will look like a plowed field. Under famine, pestilence, a siege, surrounded by Babylon. And even at that level, they continue not to repent. They continue to throw through prophets like Jeremiah in jail. God himself is fighting against his people. He abandons them without strength. You think the nation of Israel had a military power that was so strong and now looks like a, a leaf blown by the wind. And Israel by this time proudly holds on to the desire to be independent. Proudly holds on to freedom. But they fail to realize that they're already under bondage. That's how it looked like. And even after that, they still refuse to turn to God. They continue to hold on to false promises of alliance with Egypt and other nations. Maybe things will turn around regardless of our stubbornness. The prophets exhorted the people to surrender to at least lower the judgment. But they didn't do that and so God unleashed the wrath. The city of Jerusalem is on fire. Not once but twice. The temple is destroyed. Doom is inescapable. It looked impossible to take that city, but it was taken. And at that time, they asked for the word for the Lord, but it will not come. It was too late. They were too coward to repent, too afraid of the opinion of people, and not of the opinion of gods. And now the vessels of the temple go to, to Babylon. The remains of the temple are in ruin. That false worship is brought to an end. You see how God cared 
that the temple was already abandoned by the presence of God, but now it becomes visible to everyone. The city is just a heap of ruin. That's how far it was. You imagine fathers, children, women killed, raped, corpse unburied, like refuse on the ground. There's no funeral, no lament. Even tombs are open to burn the dead bones of the false prophets. Complete desolation. Complete destruction. And now they are deported to a land that they don't know and they will never come back. Seventy years. An entire generation. They can't go back even if they tried. Scatter the die there. Eat wormwood and gall. Becoming a byword before all the nations. Cursed. A cause for hissing and astonishment to all nations. Nothing else, friends, remain but to weep. See how costly it is to not heed the warnings of God in His word. Not heeding the true messages of the Lord. It leads to death and destruction. And, de and judgment doesn't end with Israel. Also, non-Jewish nations in the prophets are obviously taken into this judgment. Even pagan nations like uh, all the nations around Jerusalem and, and Israel. And obviously, there's, all of this is a picture of the coming eternal judgment in hell that pales with anything compared to what we see here. It's just a foretaste of things to come. That when people reject the word of God, pretend to worship God, stubbornly continue in sin, there will be hell to pay. That God is justified in sending this lasting judgment upon Israel, the unrepented nation. We often say our nation is under judgment. But friends, we have no idea how bad it gets when actually God really steps down to judge a nation like this. I mean, if we did, we, we and our leaders will immediately quit this dumb spiral we're in. We realize sin is never worth it. We realize how bad and lasting is the judgment that we face if we continue to ignore the call from God to turn back to the Lord while there's still time. Yes, the Lord may still be found. But the, sad, the sadness of his story is that there's such a self-deception. The level of self-deception is so great that the nation went into oblivion. So, friends, what do we see here as we introduce this brief look at some of the prophecies from the major prophets? I want to say that God's command to repent is not unclear. The problem is not God, but is Israel, their rebellion as a nation, as the representative of God, by the way. Their refusal to turn around makes, what makes worse is, is, is that as we look at this story and as we look at the prophets and we compare to the state of our nation, we're no better. The way in which sin is exalted in our society, the depth in which sin is exalted, the stubbornness in which sin is pursued right in the face of God, right within the presence of God, right within, I, I'm sad to say, even the wall of the church. That ultimately the culprit was God's people. They were not heeding the word of the Lord. And so friends, let Israel's history be an example and a warning to you tonight. That ultimately if you ignore the warning, you're not going to get away with. God may destroy it, and it might already be happening, by the way, as He gradually shift and shift entire nations, particularly the Christian presence in the entire nations, if we don't corporately repent. If God doesn't send friends a major revival, we, well, we might be destroyed sooner than later. 
I mean, all of this would have left us hopelessly, obviously. We're not for the restoration after judgment. And that is what I want to conclude today with verse 18. That there's, a, and we'll explore more in coming weeks. So, uh, there's a dreadful picture of judgment here in the prophets. But there is also ultimately hopeful promise of forgiveness. For those who turnly, tr- tru- truly turn away from their sins. Here's the final invitation in verse 18. God says this. Come now and let us reason together. Let us discuss and settle the matter. God is almost saying, let's talk this over. God is able to co- and willing to consider the option of Israel. You look at the promise there. Though your sins are like scarlet or crimson, they can still be transformed as white as snow or wool. How is it that even possible? Apart from the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Friends, ultimately, our only hope is that there's one that took all the measure of God's wrath. In fact, all of the dreadful judgment upon the shoulder of the Savior was poured out on Calvary for your sin. Some say, I've sinned too much to be forgiven. I'm beyond cured, so I'm continuing this down spiral sin until the end of it but here God is saying still while there's still time turn away from your sin believe in this ultimate sacrifice that makes your sin that now looks so scarlet or crimson so unmovable as no through the power of the blood of the lamb to the power of the ultimate sacrifice then no matter how deep the stain God can still change that God can still grant you and the entire nation by the way the grace to turn away from sin but you see turn away you must turn away from sin you must to receive this true and full pardon verse 26 and 27 continue this uh, hopeful light at the end of a tunnel of the judgment Jerusalem will be inhabited by righteousness once again. And the reason is because God will redeem it. God will grant this righteousness. But those people and all of us are still called to repent in order for this to be really true. The only way that the judgment can be averted, therefore, is if someone else takes the judgment in your stead. We rarely realize the price of the rejection of Christ. You look at what we saw a little bit this morning, but the, the same destruction of the temple that happened in the exile happens again after the death of Christ. Ultimately in 70 AD, and Israel is once again scattered into the nations. And that's why Jesus warned them, save yourself from this wicked and twisted generation. Same call goes out. To have a faith accompanied by true repentance or the judgment to follow forever in hell for the false believer who has still not repented will be even greater than the one Israel faced when they were brought into Babylon. Why? Because Jesus warned, unless we repent, we all likewise will perish. Let us pray.